Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 35. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas, who had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversation of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised and ordered to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testifies to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, My brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first looked favourably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins, I will rebuild it and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city, for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud in every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, decided to choose men from among their members and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leaders among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the believers of Gentile origin in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Greetings. Since we've heard that certain persons who have gone out from us, though with no instructions from us, have said things to disturb you and have unsettled your minds, we have decided unanimously to choose representatives and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us 
to impose on you no further burden than these essentials, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, farewell. So they set off and went down to Antioch. When they gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When its members read it, they rejoiced at the exhortation. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After they had been there for some time, they were sent off in peace by the believers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, and there, with many others, they taught and proclaimed the word of the Lord. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptised into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honourable, we clothe with greater honour. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honour to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together with it. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. I have a question for those of us who have attended church meetings over the years, both here at Bloomsbury and elsewhere. What, I wonder, would be your third most memorable church meeting? I ask this because out of all those meetings, are there even as many as three that stick in your mind as memorable? I have to admit that I've struggled to answer this question myself. There was the one that commended me for ministerial training in Sheffield in about 1995. And there was the one here at Bloomsbury a few years ago where we decided to register for same-sex marriage. But beyond that, they are all something of a blur of reports received, elections conducted, and minor decisions taken. They're okay. And at the time, they felt important enough to justify going to the next one, but not many of them have been particularly memorable, if I'm honest. So as I come to preach this morning on the topic of congregational church government, I want us to take some time to consider together what we think we're doing when we gather together in church meetings to discern the mind of Christ for our congregation. 
Church meetings are, after all, one of the key distinctives of what it means to be a Baptist church. The Baptist Union of Great Britain is built on a document called the Declaration of Principle, which lists the three convictions you need to hold if you're going to be a Baptist. Taking them in reverse order, the third one is a commitment to mission and the sharing of the good news of Jesus. The second one is the conviction that baptism is for believers upon profession of faith. And the first one is as follows. The basis of the Baptist Union is that our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh, is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice as revealed in the Holy Scriptures, and that each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. And that's it. If you can sign up to those three, you can call yourself a Baptist. Mission, baptism, and discerning the mind of Christ at a local level. Each church has liberty under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to interpret and administer his laws. Those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago would have heard me preaching on the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And when we came to the gift of discernment, I commented that in a Baptist context, this is a gift that is primarily used communally and for the common good in our practice of church meetings. Theologically speaking, it's when we gather as the body of Christ that we discern the mind of Christ. I can't do this on my own, and nor can you. We need each other in this, challenging and correcting, listening and affirming. Discernment, Baptist style, is a communal activity, and the church meeting has developed as the primary place where this happens. Historically speaking, the practice of church meetings was also a crucial part of the way Baptists understood authority. In both the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England, God's authority over the church was mediated through a hierarchy of ordained priests. Think of it a bit like a triangle with God at the top and then a widening base of various layers of leadership filtering God's authority down to a congregational level. Different to this, the Baptist vision of the church was built on a theological conviction known as the priesthood of all believers, which held that there was no need for any human intermediary between the simple believer and God, because we can each of us pray directly to God in the name of Jesus. This meant that the early Baptists realised that they could do away with the hierarchy of authority. When you do this, you end up with an inverted triangle, with God still at the top, but with the primary place for the discernment of his will being found in the local congregation rather than in a hierarchical structure. There is still a place here for the exercising of the gifts of ministry and leadership, but they're always offered in the service of the local church, not over and above it. That's why I'm a minister, not a priest, because minister means servant, and I'm a servant of my congregation, offering my gifts for the benefit of us all. It's important for us to note here that there is still a place also for the wider church beyond the local congregation. And we shall discover more about this in November when we come to look at independence and interdependence. But for today, we're going to concentrate on the way God's authority is discerned within a local congregation. Another way of thinking about this is to ask the question, what is the will of God and how do we grasp it? How do we know whether it's right for us to have person A or person B as our minister? How do we know who our deacons should be? How do we discern what we should do with the money we have collectively offered to God? 
How do we know what God wants us to do about the key issues facing our congregation at this time? These are the kinds of questions that might be addressed in a typical church meeting. They're important questions, and they're questions that are vital for the good functioning of our congregational life together. But, and here I'm going to be really honest, they aren't often very exciting questions. Sometimes they are, but on the whole, they're not. In fact, in my general experience, most of the time, in most of the church meetings I've attended, has been taken up with matters of finance, buildings and fabric, and administration. I remain profoundly grateful for those who handle such matters on our behalf. And without a competent secretary, treasurer, diaconate, and the various supporting teams, we would probably go bust, have a catastrophe with our building, or get into enormous trouble because some form wasn't filled out properly. But my question for us this morning is whether these should be the primary or indeed only things we do in our church meetings. Certainly, since the early 20th century, most Baptist churches have devoted most of their church meeting time and energy to these issues of governance. The ever-rising tide of bureaucracy and accountability in wider society has demanded that we take these things seriously and do them well. And quite properly, we've responded in kind. After all, if we're going to have a building out of which we're going to do all the amazing things we do in our wider congregational life, then we have to make sure that we take good decisions about its upkeep, development and use. If we're going to be able to afford ministry that we believe we're called to live out, then we need to take good decisions about our money. Issues of finance, fabric and administration are not divorced from issues of mission and ministry. They're foundational to them. And because our authority structure is what it is, it remains important that these decisions are owned by the church meeting. So, here's my first challenge. When we gather together to deal with these issues, let's take them seriously. Let's do them well and honour those who do so much of the hard work on our behalf. And I need to say very clearly that a key part of this will be turning up and being part of the meeting. We've had a couple of church meetings recently where we barely scraped a quorum and if we're not quiet, we can't do what we need to do. So if you're a church member, even a church member who finds issues of finance, fabric and administration somewhat uninspiring, we still need you at the meetings because you still have your parts to play in the way we run our life together. But did you know that if you rewind back into the 18th and 19th centuries, Baptist church meetings were something very different. Most of the time in these early Baptist meetings was spent not on governance, but on discipleship. The church meeting was the place where the members discussed, often in quite lurid detail, the goings-on of the private lives of one another. And if people were disciplined by the church meeting, if their lives didn't conform to the standards that the congregation had set for them, this was done publicly. Some were even voted out of membership the Baptist version of excommunication. Our own church was no exception, as the following excerpt from our church history shows. Between 1849 and 1866, 24 disciplinary cases came before the church. Usually bare details are given in the minutes, but eight involved bankruptcy. Others were for adultery, stealing, having a baby too soon after marriage, intemperance, and renouncing Christianity. 
These days, of course, and thankfully, we live in a very different world. And I certainly wouldn't want to suggest a return to these church meetings of old, where such matters were addressed in public. But there is an important point here, which is that when your ministers and deacons have to deal with difficult and complex personal circumstances on behalf of the church, and we do from time to time, we are only doing so using authority delegated to us by the church meeting. And ultimately, we're accountable to the church meeting for the way we do it. But I'm still left wondering if there is more to church meetings than we've covered so far. We know that they're going to have to include issues of governance that address finance, fabric and administration. And we know that they are the source of the authority for the discipline side of discipleship insofar as that is the business of the church. But is there more? I think we've inherited a bit of a language problem in the way we talk about church meetings. We sometimes speak of them as being church business meetings. But this does not mean business in the sense of finance and industry, as in businesswoman. Rather, it means the business of the church, the things that keep us busy as a congregation, the things that matter to us. Stuart Blythe suggests that church meetings should deal with matters that matter. And whilst this clearly includes governance, it should not be restricted to it. So what, in addition to finance, fabric and admin, might feature on a church meeting agenda? Glenn Stassen, an American Baptist ethicist, makes a good point. He says, Some churches seek to avoid offending any members, and so steer clear of controversial issues and confrontations. But this reduces the gospel to private matters or general principles that do not clash with interests and ideologies. These churches fail to confront members in ways that provide the guidance we need for our lives. And they're avoiding dress addressing issues, injustices and problems that threaten us. They offer something far removed from the Jesus in the gospels who challenges the religious and social complacency of his generation. In so many ways, we have reduced our faith to the personal and the individual. We receive the content of a sermon individually and act on it, or not, privately. We vote in church meetings individually and occasionally secretly. We are baptised one at a time. And yet we are baptised into the communal body of Christ as we gather together as priests before God and to one another. The church meeting where we gather to discern the mind of Christ calls us away from our individualism and back into relationship with one another. So I find myself wondering what it would look like if church meetings included opportunities to hear from one another on more controversial issues to be confronted together about the injustices and problems that we all carry. I don't think Stassen has in mind here a return to the kind of nosy Parker approach of earlier centuries, where individuals were singled out for their transgressions and disciplined. Rather, what I think is in view here is a more collective approach to discipleship, where together we are unafraid to tackle the big issues to seek the mind of Christ for our community on them. And the thing is, and hear this very clearly, we don't all have to agree. We can have a discussion, 
hear from one another, even challenge one another, and not actually end up in complete agreement. Did you notice that in the reading we had earlier from the book of Acts, they don't end up in complete agreement either. The council at Jerusalem, the first church meeting of the early church, forges compromise from conflict so that they can move forwards together. It hears from diverse voices. There is a process of listening and discussion. They know that they're going to have to live with disagreement in how this is going to be worked out in different contexts. Similarly, in the reading we had from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he's very clear that the members of a church are all different from one another and that Christian unity is not Christian uniformity. So what would it look like for our collective discernment of the mind of Christ to include not just next year's church budget or the next phase of our building development, but issues that matter beyond our gathered community? After all, we are the body of Christ gathered on a Sunday, but we are the body of Christ scattered on a Monday. I wonder how our church meetings on occasional Sunday afternoons might reflect our lives Monday to Saturday. What would it look like if our gathering included discernment together on issues of politics or immigration or racism or homophobia or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia? Not with a view to necessarily all agreeing at the end of it, but with an intent to hear from one another, and in so doing, to hear from Christ himself. What would it look like if we came to our church meetings in humility, holding our convictions lightly, willing to be challenged and to change, rather than to argue our corner or defend our position? What would it look like if those of us who are very used to speaking in church meetings made a covenant with our tongue to say our peace and then shut up for a while? What if our church meetings became the cradle for justice and inclusion in our community? If you think I'm dreaming here, let me take you back to the origin of the practice of voting in church meetings. In 1835, a man called Charles Stovell published a manual on church order in which he commended balloting as a good procedure. Until this point, as far as we know, Baptist churches didn't use voting as part of their discernment. They just prayed and talked until it was clear. And if it wasn't clear, they came back next week or next month and tried again. These days, of course, voting is embedded in our constitution. A simple 50% for most issues, but a two-thirds majority for the calling of a minister or buying and selling a property. You could read this adoption of voting into church meetings as a move away from spiritual discernment in an earlier, purer form. But you'd be wrong if you did. The wonderful thing about voting is that in a Baptist context, everyone gets the vote. In 1832, just three years before the publication of Stubble's Hints on the Regulation of Christian Churches, the Reform Act had extended the franchise in England to about 650,000 men, which works out at about 10% of the male population of the country. At the time Stavell was writing, 90% of men and all women still could not vote in national elections. For Stavell, to advocate a practice of voting where everyone gets a vote, male and female, rich and poor, 
property owning or not. It was a radically subversive, gospel-inspired remodeling of the structures that bind wider society together. So yes, we sometimes vote, and when we do, our votes matter, but they matter because each of us has a vote, each of us has a voice. And I appreciate this could sound like a plea to attend church meetings, but if you're a member of the church and you don't attend, then you don't have a vote and you don't have a voice, and we're all poorer for that loss, because it may well have been through you that we would have heard the mind of Christ speaking more clearly to our community. It pains me to think that we may have lost Stubble's radical vision of the church as the meeting place where the barriers to inclusion are removed. What I wonder would it look like today in our context to rediscover that urgency, that intensity, whereby our way of gathering and discerning as Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church was itself a process of challenge to the structures of oppression still at large in our society. Stephen Holmes suggests that the church meeting should be profoundly subversive of almost every human social order. This is the church where every social division is leveled and each person is granted the dignity of one made in the image of God and remade through the sacrifice of Christ and the work of the Spirit. So what would it look like if our meetings were places where everyone was heard and not just the same old articulate few? What if we committed ourselves to hearing and hearing well to voices from the margins of our community, even if they make us uncomfortable? What if we found ways of hearing from those who don't like speaking out loud in public debate? Ruth Moriarty gives us a clear challenge. She says, if the church meeting fails to hear from all of the voices within its membership, then it fails to hear the fullness of the Holy Spirit's voice and so operates with a limited image of God. She goes on to suggest that what we need is the spirit of Pentecost, present with us each time we meet, giving us all the gift of new speech and careful hearing so that we can all hear the words of Christ from one another. And here's the thing, I don't have all the answers to this. I haven't heard from God how we should structure things in the future. I don't have a master plan for reconfiguring church meetings, because I'm your minister, not your priest. I need you, and you need me, as we share together in the priesthood of all believers. But I'm going to keep asking the questions, and I'm going to keep listening, because we need to keep hearing from one another. We need to keep challenging one another as we discern the mind of Christ for our community. So I'll see you at the next church meeting, and we can continue the task of working this all out together. <laughs>